I've been thinking about March 1st since September 1st. September 1 was Labor Day. I don't know if you can remember where you were on Labor Day, but on Labor Day, Labor Day was the first day last year that I actually circled March 1st on my calendar and I began to pray for it because I knew that from September 1 to March 1, I was going to go on the greatest six-month journey of my life. And, and what I find funny is that I actually prayed starting September 1. Um, I prayed that we would have good weather on March 1st, which tells me if you have a really serious prayer need, you should ask Pastor Ryan to pray for you because there's a, there's a little bit of a disconnect right now in what I'm asking God to do um, and what is happening. But in the last six months, uh, I knew in September, I had one of my mentors tell me one time when I said, how do I know if something is the will of God? How do, how do I know when I'm walking the right direction? How do I know what's faith and what's foolishness? And they said, Christian, you just need to set up basically a, a line of doors, and every time a door opens, God's telling you to go forward, and if a door's locked, just stand right where you are. So on September 1st, I set up this imaginary hallway in my head, if you can imagine it, that had 30 doors to it, and today was the last door. I knew that March 1 um, was going to come, but I knew it wasn't going to get here the way God wanted it to unless the first 29 doors had opened. So I began a six-month spiritual journey, leadership journey, a church planning journey of walking towards today, asking God if this is what he wanted for our church. The first 10 steps had to happen before the end of October. Um, and I don't know about you, but it's really it was difficult for me to really stay spiritually focused with the Royals in the postseason. Uh, I'm just telling you, like, I, you know, I had these massive meetings set up with bankers and builders and people who wanted to help us build our church. I said, you know, I'm like, I'm going to have to reschedule because we won again. Um, and it was difficult maneuvering the first two months around the Kansas City Royals playoff push an eventual World Series Game 7. But we got the first 10 steps down, and it was like every time I checked the doorknob, like the door opened, and it was like God saying, keep moving forward. The next five doors were in December. We had five things that had to happen in December as a church, or we weren't going to move forward into January and launch this project to build a building church-wide. And in December, in those five meetings, focus groups, and meetings with banks, and meeting with builders, um, in, in December, all five doors opened, and we kept moving forward down this hallway. The next 14 doors happened between January 1 and yesterday, and we knew that we had to have 14 things go almost perfect to get to today to close the deal, and today on March 1, we stand in front of the very final door, and we are going to, as a congregation, we're going to grab the doorknob at the end of church, and we're going to see if God is saying, move forward and keep going and build this building. For those of you who are fairly new to the process, what we've been trying to do as a church for the last year, we've been designing a building. We've been showing just a little bit of what God has been calling us to do, some, some kind of scales of what we're building out, the, the schematic design that we presented to the city to get preliminary, preliminarily approved of what we wanted to build that they said yes to. Next week, we're going to be showing color renditions of our church from multiple angles and things that we've really put together. But we knew coming into this season that this was going to be a difficult six months, that it was going to be a difficult project. We're trying to build a $4 million building to complete a $4 million project. And we knew in order to do that, after talking with everyone we talked to, that we needed to raise a million dollars cash before we moved into the building. And we weren't sure if a church that was three years old had the ability 
and the capacity to do that, especially a church filled primarily with young families who are, who are not real asset wealthy, which means we don't just go cash our stocks and our bonds, but we're, we're still under the age of 50, kind of churning, um, churning money as we go. Now, the good thing was because all the pre-meetings we had, we knew on January 11th when we announced this idea to our church that $812,000 had already been pledged. So we had seven weeks to basically have God speak to people and say, help. We knew that our final push was going to be $188,000. And by the time we get done today, we'll know where we stand. And next Sunday, we're going to have Celebration Sunday as a church. And listen, you need to be here. It's going to be one of the greatest Sundays in the history of our church. Even if you're a guest, I want to encourage you to come next Sunday because you're going to hear what amounts to either a move of God or an absolute mental breakdown of a pastor. And either way, it's going to be worth it. I mean, next week will be worth the price of admission one way or the other, I promise you. So come and be a part of what's going on. But here's what I know. If you, if you haven't taken your sermon notes out of your bulletin so you can follow along yet, here's what I knew on, March, on, on September 1st about today. I knew that it would be impossible for our church to reach the goals set before us if we didn't achieve the spirit of the church in the book of Acts. I mean, I knew on September 1, as I began to study Scripture, and I said, Lord, how is our little church, three years old, going to lean into this project? God, how are we going to do that? God led me to the book of Acts, and he said, this is what a church looks like that accomplishes unbelievable things for Jesus. So I knew moving into the year that we had to have some of the DNA found in the book of Acts. So we've been studying the book of Acts since January 11. In Acts 1, we see this simple message from Jesus to his disciples that we're supposed to get to work and that we're all important in the kingdom of God. Every person in God's kingdom is important. We learned in Acts 2 that a chosen generation willing to share their lives and resources can change a city. And that's our goal here situated in Southwest Lee Summit. We want to change our community. We want to have influence and impact in our community for good. We saw in Acts chapter 3 the impact of a life-changing gift when Peter and John basically through the power of Jesus saw men healed who'd been lame for 40 years. And then in Acts chapter 4, we learned this lesson that ordinary people who are connected to Jesus will do extraordinary things if, we learned last week, they'll pray for boldness and they'll walk in faith and not fear. Now, this journey we've been on as a church this year has been unbelievable, but this is actually my second time through this journey because this is exactly what I did as an individual in 2010. October 23, 2009, I'm sitting in a church in Seoul, South Korea, and God lays on my heart that, that he wants me to start a new church in an area of town that I've never really been to or spent time in. And as I wrestled through, God, how am I gonna do that? In 2010, God led me to study the book of Acts so that he could show me that ordinary people, I'm very ordinary spiritually, probably less than ordinary, ordinary people who are connected to Jesus will do extraordinary things if they'll pray for boldness and walk in faith and not fear. So by July of 2010, I said, yes, God, I'm going to move out. And as an individual, Danielle and the kids and I, we moved out and we kind of launched Journey Church International. Now here we are four years later, right back in the book of Acts, and we're trying to convince not just a person, but a church to see a movement of God. And if we don't arrive today as a church, where the first church arrived in Acts chapter 4, then this God-sized miracle we're asking for is not going to happen. But if we can find in ourselves the spirit of what we find in Acts chapter 4, we're going to be okay. So if you have your Bible, I want you to turn to Acts chapter 4. We've been living in Acts 4 for the last two weeks. We'll be here today. If you don't have a Bible, our ushers have one that you can, 
that you can borrow. They actually have one that you can use and keep if you want it. Since we started our church, we've given away more than 700 Bibles this way. So if you forgot yours or if you want one, just wave at an usher and you can like actually read along in a paper Bible with us or fire up your your phone or your tablet, whatever you're following along with. But every Sunday, we're going we're gonna to open a Bible and read it. So bring a Bible with you when, when you come to church or, or use one of ours. But in Acts chapter 4, verses 32 through 37, we see a picture of a church that six months ago today, I knew we had to become to accomplish what God had called us to. And I knew in September that God, if, if we are this, March 1, we're good. And if we're not, we're probably going to have to reevaluate our plan but God, help us be like this church in Acts 4, 32 through 37. Here, here's the church we read about. It says, all the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them, in them all, that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had needs. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned, and he brought the money, and he put it at the apostles' feet. Listen, the description of the church in Acts chapter 4, verses 32 through 37, is a church that had one, one heart and one mind. It was a church that had one heart and one mind to pursue Jesus and to help others. And as we look at the spirit of this church that had one heart and one mind, there's three things in this text that really raise to the surface of this is what made this church unique. And if our church is going to uniquely bless our community and our city and be a spiritual home for us, my prayer is that our church will have these three things that describe the spirit, the DNA, the culture the lives of the people in the church. And here's what we find. We find that this church with one heart and one mind, first and foremost, had a spirit of unity. They had a spirit of, of unity. Unity is one of the most used words in the book of Acts. This thought, Luke kept saying the church was all together. They were in one place. They were unified. They were in one accord. They had the same spirit. Luke, in the book of Acts, used this word and talked about this concept that everyone was together moving the same direction as kind of one of the main ideas of his book. And listen, you can tell God is moving. Here's how I say it. When different folks with different strokes come together for a common spiritual purpose. When people who, who are not anything like one another, when people who don't even like the same things as one another, when people from different walks of life, different backgrounds, different ways you were raised, different futures, different goals, when people from different walks of life come together, and they all get moving in the same direction together spiritually, we find that God is at work. And this has kind of happened over and over again in the life of our church. When God first laid it on my heart to start a church, I thought the first people I have to convince, I can't go on my own, are going to have to be my wife and my kids. And regardless of what anyone gives through this process or the next 10 that will come, I still really believe that probably Danielle, Christian, and Casey have made the greatest sacrifice that anyone will ever make in, in our church because, I mean, they, they gave up everything. Like our dream home that we took three years to kind of design and build, we picked out every little thing of everything we had to sell um, and move into a foreclosed house. Our nice cars that we drove, we, we turned in and we got, just got the cheapest beater cars we could afford and hoped they would last us as long as possible. We pulled our kids in the middle of the school year out of one school, 
put them in another school. We, we pulled Christian off of his sports teams. In the middle of the sports year, put him off his sports teams, put him on other sports teams. Every friend they knew. We had, we had relationships with people in our life who were really close to us that we understood if we step out and do this, these people are probably for a season going to disown us and never speak to us. Worst case scenario, they'll speak really negatively about us. And it, it was worst case scenario plus some. I mean, it was hard what happened. But, but they kind of said, you know, Daniel said, Christian, I'm in. The kids said, Dad, I'm in. And, and we did it. That led to kind of a second group of people with one heart and one mind. Five families at our church that became what we called kind of the, the core team. Five families who before we even talked about anything as a church, they said, we believe this is the type of church we want to be a part of and we want to help start. And for nine months, these five families did everything behind the scenes to push the church forward. And then that evolved into what we called a leadership team, a, a, a group of 10 couples, 10 men and their spouses and families who basically helped make every decision that our church had over the next three years. They became our elders. They become our pastoral advisory team members. They were the first 10 that when we were presented with an opportunity to buy the land that we own, when I went to them and said, I don't think our church is ready for this, but if you 10 want to spring for a quarter million dollars between you, we can do this. They stood up and they said, we're in 10 people, one heart and one mind. And now we've got a much larger group of people that we're asking God to move in the same direction together. And four people can't do this next step. And 10 people can't do this next step. But Todd Higgins, who's one of our elders, and he's the finance team member who's handling basically all the pledge and commitment process, told me this week, he said, Christian, already over 130 different families have made a pledge or given to the building. See, that's too many people to even know all their names. That's too many people to stand on a stage and recognize. That, that basically is like, Almost our entire church, 130 families that have said we're going to move in this direction together. You see, when God reveals himself to the world, one of the attributes of his movement is unity. People move in the same direction together. This is actually one of the great apologetics of why we believe that the Bible came from God. If you've ever studied anything about how to defend your faith or how to have answers for your faith, or if you've ever tried to convince someone that you believe that the Bible actually came from God and not from human sources, one of the things they teach you in seminary is that the unity of the message of Scripture really points to it being a divine book because there's no way humans could have created this on their own without some kind of supernatural guidance. Do you know that the Bible was written by approximately 40 different people, most of whom never met each other? Yet they all said nearly the same thing about God and his desire to be close to humanity. You know, the Bible was written over a time period of 1,600 years between the first author who decided to write and the last author, the Apostle John, that decided to write. Over a period of 1,600 years, yet the message never changed. Do you know it was written over a geographical span of 2,200 miles before planes, trains, and automobiles? It was written to cover a multitude of personal, relational, spiritual, and societal themes that were unique to when people lived, but yet in a global sense, all ended up having a unity to their message. It was written by people with vastly different backgrounds. Some of the writers of scripture were politicians like Moses. Some were kings like David. Some were prophets. Some were fishermen like the disciples. Some were doctors like Luke or tax collectors like Matthew. 
Some were theologians like the Apostle Paul or farmers or shepherds or businessmen. Some were butlers or household servants like Nehemiah. They just did the dishes and served the food. Some were soldiers like Joshua. Some were slaves like the entire first generation who lived in Egypt. Yet all these people with vastly different backgrounds came together to write a book that goes together. And it was written by people with vastly different socioeconomic standing. It wasn't written by rich people trying to run the world or by poor people trying to figure out how they could be helped. They all came together and there's this incredible unity from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22 that makes it seem like perhaps there's a single source author who was driving this. See, when God moves, unity happens. And we've seen this incredible spirit of unity within this season of building a building. As I've talked to people and discussed this building project with people who really want to help, we've seen folks who have retired and are living on a set amount of money for the rest of their lives, who have given part of their, the, the money they have, on to, have to live on for the rest of their life, they have given that to help us build a building. And we have folks who are working their very first ever job who are giving some of their first five or 10 checks that they've ever made to help us build a building. We've got people giving who had their best year financially ever last year. And we've got folks who are giving who were actually laid off last year and right now don't have a job as I speak today. We have people giving who have been in church their entire lives and they've just bounced from one building project to the next and they've done this a bunch of time. And we've got people giving who have never been to a church ever before. And this is the first time they've helped do anything like this. With people giving who are living in a season of unbelievable blessing. It's such a joy to give. And we have people giving who are living in an unbelievable season of suffering. And this is the most difficult thing that they have ever done. We've got some people giving who have just beaten a disease and been cured of what they were struggling with. And we've got people giving who have just been diagnosed with something. We've got businessmen and businesswomen who are giving. Coaches, teachers, bankers. Builders, principals, doctors, dentists, high school and college students, even elementary school students, parents and grandparents, married and single folks, ministers, lawyers, people who sell cars and homes and retirements to people like the rest of us. We've got bosses and secretaries, contractors and subcontractors, Democrats, Republicans, independents, and people who don't even know they're supposed to vote. All those people are kind of in this realm are coming together to say, let's do this. Listen, God does that. Preachers don't do that. Small groups don't do that. Programs don't do that. God does that. We've got people who won't sit and watch a game together because they're rooting for people on the opposite, opposite end of the television. We've got people who can't talk to each other in November because they don't have anything that they'll agree on in election season. We've got people who manage their life and their money in entirely different ways and people living in unbelievable seasons of blessing and unbelievable seasons of hurt. Yet they've all come together and said, let's do this. That's a God thing. That's how you can know when God is moving. I guess what you can say is we got a bunch of different folks with different strokes moving in the same direction. That's a sign that God is moving because a move of God is always marked by a group of people unifying together to witness or to take part in a move of God. And something's happening in our congregation that can only be described as a spirit of unity that is marking or getting ready to mark a move of God that's getting ready to happen in our community that we get to watch or that we get to take part in or maybe both. A spirit of unity in a church can change the world. Secondly, we look at this church and we see an unbelievable spirit of generosity. An incredible spirit of generosity. In verses 33 through 35, we actually, this, it appears to be a misprint because in Acts chapter 2, 
we read almost the same words about the church, but anytime someone talked about the church, they talked about their generosity. So different chapter, different story, but same thought. It says, with great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them, for from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and they put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had a need. Listen, we've studied this church now in Acts for almost two months. This church in Acts chapter 4 had really narrowed their focus to two things, Jesus and others. I mean, this church in Acts 4 was consumed with two things, learning about Jesus, getting close to Jesus, talking about Jesus, and helping people. That's what this church was about. And it's interesting because when you just look at the snapshot of Acts 4, a church that's willing to share their lives and resources, number one, it testifies to the generosity of Jesus. Because no one who hasn't radically been touched by Jesus or some church at some point in their life is willing to share anything for anyone else. But when people begin to give, their giving testifies to the generosity of Jesus because they have this spirit that you'll see on your sermon notes. There's the spirit of Jesus gave all so I can give some. I'm telling you, people don't give and lean into massive projects like we're pursuing without the thought of, you know what? Jesus gave all, I can give some. Jesus has done so much for me, I can do something for someone else. Anytime a Christian has a spirit of generosity, it testifies to the spirit of generosity you've experienced from Jesus. And then a church that's willing to share their lives and resources, it meets the needs of people. Our church has done that and is doing that. I'm excited about how we've helped do this physically in our community. I said this on February 1st, but since our church began, as of the end of last year, our church has provided 62,000 meals in our community, community to elementary school kids on state-sponsored lunches who do not have food when they go home or over the summer. I want you to hear that again. 62,000 meals our church has provided elementary school students in the Lee Summit School District who don't have food if we don't give it. We've given 750 Christmas gifts to families in our community over the last three years so parents who wouldn't have anything for their kids have the ability to have something for their kids on Christmas morning. We've stocked food pantries at schools all over the school district and are getting ready to do it again this week for Campbell Middle School. We've given gym clothes to people and school supplies for kids who can't afford school supplies. And in August, we're going to have our greatest back-to-school community outreach ever as we target intentionally the seven elementary schools that send students to this middle school and we try to meet as many needs in those seven elementary schools as there possibly are. We've got a heart to help meet needs because generous churches meet people's needs, but I'm, I'm as proud of the way we've helped meet spiritual needs in our congregation. Because when you do a survey of Lee Summit, when you do a survey of the people who live around you, we talked about the hundred people that live in our radius. Most of them are not physically hungry, but most of them are very spiritually needy. And we have a church that's helped provide inner peace to people who were struggling in life. We have a church who again and again has provided hope for tomorrow for people who wonder if it's worth it to keep going. We have a church that's provided direction in life when people face a crossroads and they say, what's next for us? We have a church that has cared for and comforted people who are in pain from the loss of loved ones to the loss of a job to just the, the grief over a marriage 
or kids. We've got a church that's given marital help and direction to people who were going to call it quits. They just decided they couldn't move forward. And some are even still moving forward slowly. But they put away the white surrender flag and thought, we'll try. We've got a church that's provided parenting help and direction to parents who say, you know, I just want my kids to love God, but it doesn't seem to be happening. How can you help us? We've got a church that's provided friendship and community for people who maybe outside of our church family don't have any friends or anyone to hang out with and have community with here in our community. So our church and our people are meeting needs. And our church and our, com- and our people will continue to meet needs as long as we continue to be generous with our time and with our resources. But we see that a spirit of generosity, also number three, a spirit of generosity demands sacrifice. But it sees the rewards of sacrifice. Don't just take one of these points without the other. Because if we say a spirit of generosity demands sacrifice, you might think, well, gosh, I don't know that I want to do that. But if you see a a spirit of generosity demands sacrifice but sees the rewards of sacrifice, you may think, all right, talk to me a little bit. I'm listening. You know, we've got some people who have leaned into this building project who have given massive amounts, and they're not sacrificing a lot because God has given them massive amounts. And they're just, they're really blessed, and they're blessed to give And they can give a whole lot without it impacting them a ton. And then we've got some people who are giving what maybe people in the congregation wouldn't wouldn't seem to be a life-changing gift. But for them, it's a tremendous sacrifice. For them, it's a vacation. For them, it's waiting a year on a car. For them, it's not buying new clothes or maybe cutting back on a hobby. It's, It's tremendous sacrifice. Some of our people are giving. Some are sharing. Some are sacrificing. All of them are going to be rewarded, but we need to understand that generous people, they sacrifice, but then they see the rewards of that sacrifice. Probably the smallest offering I ever gave taught me this point. My sophomore year at Liberty University, I'm sitting in a Wednesday night church service. We did chapel there. It was a Christian university, and it was right before semester break when I was getting ready to go home. And because I, because I played football there and because I was on scholarship at that time, you weren't allowed to have a job. You, you could not make an income during the semester. So I would work all summer. I'd put my money in the bank. The money that I'd save, mom and dad would match. And I'd, it just, you just have to watch it and hope it didn't run out. And I was like a week out from semester and I was out at $3 left. And I was sitting in that service and I had three $1 bills in my right pocket and I'm sitting in that service. I don't remember who spoke. I don't remember what the message was about. I don't remember what the band sang. I don't remember who I was there with. Clearly, God was moving in a powerful way. Like, like I just, I don't, even, I don't remember anything about the service. But after the service, some student got up, introduced himself, said, hi, my, my name's so-and-so. And they said, I've decided to give up my Christmas break to go on a mission trip. I leave in a week and a half. I'm going to some part of the world that needed Jesus desperately. He says, I haven't been able to raise all my money, and they're, they're going to be so generous. They're going to allow me to take an offering tonight to help me fund my trip. And as she's saying that, I'm paying very little attention until God speaks to my heart. And I very clearly felt God speak to my heart and say to her, you you should give her that $3 in your pocket. And I remember saying to God as if I was having a conversation with someone, yeah, I don't don't think I I want to do that. Um, And it became kind of a tug of war. And I'm sitting there and they've started now passing the offering. And God's like, I need you to give that $3. And I said, well, Lord, I need this $3. And God's like, you're going to give that money. And I'm like, no, I'm not. Now, you know, this time, like, my hand is in my pocket, and I'm gripping my $3. I needed this 
See, when I, when I was at Liberty, a lot of us little guys on the football team, we had a calorie count that we tried to hit. My goal every day was to eat 5,000 calories. I wish, Robbie, that was still the point. I try every now and then to still get it, but I, I don't burn it like I used to. But I had to try to eat 5,000 calories every day. And almost every day at 11.30, we had a little drive-through uh, cheeseburger joint in Lynchburg, Virginia called Rallies. I don't, I don't know if they have them in the Midwest, but Rallies had a 99-cent double cheeseburger and 79-cent large fry. And I knew every night at 11.30, literally there would be, from the football dorm, everyone would get in their cars. We'd go to Rallies. It closed at midnight. And I knew for $3, I could get two double cheeseburgers a large fry, and a glass of water. And I mean, I did this every day faithfully. When I started Danielle, dating Danielle, Danielle would go with me every night faithfully. We came home for winter break, and her, her mom was like, babe, you can't eat like a football player. Um, that, you know, that's, that's not good for you. So we, we did that less when, when I got married. But while we were dating, it was like every night I had to go get my food. So I needed that $3. I had plans for that $3, and it was only $3. I mean, this this was not going to make or break this gal's mission trip. It was three bucks. But God was speaking to me. So I'm sitting there, and I've got my, my hand in my pocket, and I'm clenching my money. And God's like, you're going to give? I'm like, no, I'm not. And God's like, give him. I'm like, no. And he's giving. No. And as the offering basket is being passed, I felt like God like, was going to rip my heart out of my chest. He was like, give. So I was like, fine. I remember literally saying the words. I put the money in. Stupid missionary. Put the $3 in. <laughs> passed the basket. I was so upset. Walk back to my dorm. Sure enough, I'm laying on my bunk. 11.30 comes around. The move, the herd starts moving out to the parking lot. I remember somebody knocked on my door. Everyone called me Noose in college. They're like, Noose, you going, you going to rallies? And I was like, no, I, I can't go tonight. And they're like, what? You're not going? I was like, yeah. And they're like, why not? I said, God made me give my money to a missionary. Like, I remember saying that. Like, just, God made me give my money to a missionary. And he was like, well, all right. See, when we get back, it's like no spirit of generosity among teammates there. It's like... Can you spring 99 cents? All right, we'll see you when you get back. So the next day, I'm still, I'm probably hungry now, and I'm stewing a little bit on what had happened. Go to class, and I stop by the post office, which I never went to the post office on campus, but I was getting ready to go home for a semester, so I thought I should check it just in case. And inside my post office box is a little blue envelope, like a thank you note size card. My name, no return address, stamped from a place I'd never been, didn't know anyone. And I opened up the card, and as I opened up the card, it had two $20 bills in it, and it just said, Christian, God told me you might need this. Been praying for you. Signed by nobody. And as I'm sitting there, I'm thinking, like, this is unbelievable. And then I thought, this was probably here before last night. I wonder how long. If I would have checked the mail sooner, God may have made me give $43 instead. So I was really grateful <laughs> that I would waited. So I thought, he probably... Thank God I didn't have that last night, or I can go to rallies for a week now. Um, I was so excited. But that, that moment, that moment taught me that when God speaks to your heart, you can trust it. That moment taught me that sometimes God speaks to you and it demands sacrifice, but that God rewards their sacrifice. And here's the funny thing. Three people stopped me after our early service before I left. They said, Christian, I've already had my $3 moment in this campaign. We prayed, we did this, we gave, we said we were going to give, we didn't know how it was going to happen, and then we've already experienced our $3 story. My prayer for our church is not just that we meet our goals, but that all of you end up with some kind of $3 story where you were willing to sacrifice 
and you saw God reward that sacrifice in ways that's just funny. It's like only God could do that. This church lived with a spirit of generosity. And then thirdly, this church lived with a spirit of encouragement. Love this. They live with a spirit of encouragement. They actually had a guy in their church they nicknamed encouragement. Weird name in English, sounds a little better in, in the Greek language. It says, Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and he brought the money and he put it at the apostles' feet. Now, I will not go into all the details of that, but I want you to know, I don't think God is calling most of us to sell all our stuff and give to the church. We know from the Old Testament that Levites were not allowed to own anything. God was their inheritance. So the fact that Barnabas owned something, owned a piece of property, meant that at some point in his life, he, he was in ministry rebellion to God. He thought, you know, God can't take care of me. I got to take care of myself. And at some point, God got in his head and God said, if, if you will live life my way, I will take care of you. So he, he sold his field in an act of repentance. He brought the money and was like, okay, I'm going to let God take care of me. That's not for everyone. It was for him. But what happened when he gave this gift is like, man, like this, this guy's one of the most encouraging people in the world. Now, it's interesting how people often fall into two categories in your life. There are those who discourage you and those who encourage you. And you know who they are. Because when you see their number pop up or their name pop up on your cell phone, you've already identified them. People who encourage you, you just pray that they'll call you. You can't wait when you see their name in a subject line of an email. You hope you bump into them at church or the grocery store or at work. And then those who discourage you, like they've got a special ring on your phone and like you make sure not to answer it. You accidentally delete their emails. If you see them coming down the hallway, you get, you know, you get a text real quick. You got to look at them and you're like you're trying to avoid contact. And Barnabas in this church, this early church, was filled with people like Barnabas. And when a church is filled with people like Barnabas, it'll fulfill the purpose of God for his church. It will encourage people and give life to the people it's associated with. Now, let me ask you a question. Because you've probably just real quickly in your mind, you've, you've built a little Rolodex of the encouragers and the discouragers in your life. Okay, what list do you fall on in someone else's life? Like, are you one of the most encouraging people that anyone has ever met? We've got some people in our church that when I see them calling me, I know they're calling to give me encouraging news because it's who they are. I've got other people that when I see their number come up, I know I need an hour because something needs to, needs to be talked about. And it's a, it's a DNA thing as much as it's a spiritual, spiritual maturity thing. And I wonder how many of us, let's, let's quit talking about the building for a minute. Let's quit talking about giving for a minute. Let's just talk about encouragement. How many of us have someone in our life who needs encouragement this week? That if we would quit worrying about ourselves or we would quit just seeing the 10 bad things and could focus on the one good thing, how many of us could call and really encourage someone this week? How many of us could encourage our spouse this week or encourage our kids this week or encourage a coworker this week or encourage our boss this week or encourage a worker this week that works for us? How many of us, if we were intentional, could say this week, I'm going to be an encourager. I'm going to encourage somebody every day. Because when you've got people in your church like Barnabas that people want to be around, the community will be drawn to them because we live in a world that needs encouragement. They constantly are working through discouragement. So if we will be a church filled with people who will encourage people, 
starting with their families and then the people they work with and then the people they serve with. If we would choose to be encouragers, it would change the spirit of our church. Now, the mission statement of our church is we believe what the purpose of God's church is, to see people far from God become passionate Christians who make a difference in the world. When you look at the last statement in Scripture made about Barnabas, it tells us he was a person who did this in his life. In Acts 11.24, here's what's said about Barnabas. I, I, I've said this is the greatest epithet that there ever is. If, if, if you would have this put on your tombstone, you will have lived a good life. In Acts 11.24, Luke said Barnabas was a good man. He was full of the Holy Spirit. He was strong in his faith. And many people were brought to the Lord through his life. How many of us could say that? How many people in our church are good people, full of the Holy Spirit, strong in their faith? And because they're around, people are finding Jesus. See, if we can learn to be people who are encouraging, filled with the Holy Spirit, strong in our faith. And if we interact with people who don't know Jesus, like God will do that work. If he could just drop us in the middle of people who need him and we live with an encouraging spirit, the work is done for us. And when you get a church together that has a spirit of unity, that has a spirit of generosity, and that has a spirit of encouragement, There's not a whole lot that that church can't do to impact the community that it's in. So six months ago, I saw today through the lens of vision. I started praying for today. And I saw it just like it was, except with a little less snow. And I thought, you know what? If in six months, our church can become a spiritual family with people like Barnabas, if we'd agree to have a spirit of unity, move forward together. If we'd agree to have a spirit of generosity and understand the sacrifice that demands, but the rewards that come from that, man, what type of church could we be for the community that we exist in? So we're going to pray one last time in just a moment on this Commitment Sunday for our church, for this community, and for what we believe God has called us to build in this community, a church building to help facilitate better ministry to our people and better ministry to those who are not here yet. A church with one heart and one mind can really do some unbelievable things for God. And I'm praying today, door number 30, as we walk up to it and jiggle the doorknob, I'm praying that it's unlocked. And I'm actually praying that at the end of today, they come back to me and they say, Christian, don't, the door didn't just open, it actually got blown off its hinges. The door frame is gone, the wall is gone, God moves so powerfully past what we thought we needed. We just need to follow strongly and quickly and with great faith. Would you pray with me?